Uh, my name is Jim uh, Engelman. And how long have you been coming to Westridge? I've been coming to Westridge now for roughly four months. How did you, um, how'd you hear about Westridge? There's a story behind this. Um, I live in the neighborhood, so I had driven past it a few times, but I've driven past a number of churches, and we, we, weren't, we weren't practicing. I mean, we weren't coming to, we weren't coming to any church. Um, you know, we're still members of the Catholic churches where we grew up, but um, we, we, weren't, we weren't practicing Catholics. And um, I actually um, recently struggled with uh, my drinking a bit. You know, I was drinking a little bit too much, and um, it got to a point as... I, um, as I was raising my four-year-old son and, you know, growing closer and apart and closer and apart with my wife, I realized I needed to make a change. And what I did was um, I walked into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting for the first time uh, to, to try to get some help, just some support. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't drinking, getting knocked down drunk, but I was indulging on a daily basis, and I was coming home from work and hit, opening a beer and basically shutting off. You know, I wasn't giving enough time to my family. Um, and I, I walked into this meeting, and within the first, uh, the second meeting I went to, I met a gentleman there who was a Baptist, of all things. And he was up in front doing the lead, and he spoke to the group. And as he spoke to the group, it... it um, stirred up some old feelings and some old some memories of um, my, my, my upbringing. These feelings that this stirred up inside of me got me interested in the Baptist faith of all things. This is where it gets kind of strange. Um, so I, after about two weeks of going to these meetings and them really giving me the foundation that I needed to, um, to, put, the, to put the booze down, um, and to kind of take my life back because I was using the, the, the alcohol as kind of a, a stress relief mechanism or a, a medicine, medicine of some sort uh, for the issues I was having over the course of the day. Um, a big part of that program was, is based on spirituality. You know, it's based on a higher power. And I remember mine being God and Jesus Christ, you know, uh, Catholic or Christian. That's the way I was brought up. Um, so I decided to seek out a Baptist church to see if I had a Baptist church, you know, anywhere around me. And I was going to pop in on one. I didn't want to intrude on this gentleman's church. I wasn't ready to make that, you know, commitment and connection with him. Um, and oddly enough, when I Googled Baptist church Elgin, this church was on the list. So miscategorized, perhaps. So, um, yeah, that's a long story to, to start the thing off. But, yeah, that's so I walked in here thinking I was walking into a Baptist church. I listened to you. Uh, the first day that I was here, and the message hit me right between the eyes. And, um, you know, it, uh, I think I approached you afterwards and asked you if this was a Baptist church, and you were kind of like, no, but thanks for, thanks for coming. Hope to see you again. One thing perfectly clear. You, you could accuse me of a lot of things, and most of them would be true, but don't you ever call me a Baptist. <laughs> ah, I'm just joking. Some of my best friends are Baptists. Well, uh, one of the things that I hope that we have learned together through the years, especially from our own personal experiences, is that the Christian life is not 
clean and neat and easy and tidy as some people would have you believe. In fact, I would describe the Christian life more like messy and many times gray. And I would even go as far as to say that it would, at times, it's seldom easy. But one thing is for sure. The Bible makes it very clear of what is required of us requires us to change. It requires us to live differently. But as we've seen before in the past, the odds are against us because people don't, or should I say, won't change. Most people don't change. And by the way, when we're talking about these issues, if you're still after all these years sitting out there thinking that you don't have any issues, we're still got some problems because all God's children got issues. We all got stuff. We all have things in our life that bring us down, that weigh us down, that cause us to live in a way that we don't want to live. And most people approach change as a way to stop doing some particular behavior. They see change as a need to stop doing some particular bad habit. In other words, they see the answer to the problem as somehow finding the willpower that it takes to stop doing whatever it is that's bringing them down. And here's the problem with that. Willpower doesn't work. We're not strong enough. We're not disciplined enough. We might be in some areas of our life, but in that one area that's our Achilles heel, that one area of our life that threatens to take us down and take us out completely, you're not strong enough to kick that through willpower. It requires Something much greater. Something more. It requires a complete and radical life change. It requires us to change everything about who we are just to get that one change done. It causes us to change the, the way that we think. Who we hang with. The places that we go. What we desire. It requires us to turn our lives upside down and to live completely differently than we have. So what is it? What is it that can cause that kind of change that is permanent and sustainable? Well, today we're in the middle of a series called Story, where we're looking at the stories of the true stories of people who are from right here at Westridge. Stories of defining moments that people have encountered that have changed their lives forever. And today we'll be looking at the story of Jim Engelman. It's a story of a struggle for control. And he'll tell you the truth about the issues that he faces, the struggles that he has, his need that he found for change and the impact that that's had in his life. And so as we look at his story today, the question is, how does his story intersect with yours?
I was away from church from, I mean, for realistically 20 years with a few drop-ins here and there, from 15 years old to four months ago with the occasional three-week stint at St. Julian in Elk Grove or, you know, going back to my old church for a little while. I, I gave in. I turned away, you know, more often than I'm proud to say now, you know, looking back on it. So the relationship was there, but it was, I wanna, I, you know, I think you, you, you talked a couple of weeks ago about Jesus being in the hallway, having him wait, having him wait in the hallway. You know, I mean, that's, that's where Jesus was. He was, sometimes he'd, I'd invite him in, and then sometimes I'd ask him, you know, I'd ask him to leave. Could you go stand over there for a little bit? I, I do believe that change really does come down to this issue of control. Who's going to be in control of your life? And Jim is referring to a message we did a couple months ago where we were addressing this issue of Jesus taking a permanent residence in our hearts and being filled with God to the point that the presence of God just overflows from every aspect of our lives, which is like the goal of the Christian life. But here's the problem. Our lives have become so compartmentalized through the years that we have a section of our life for everything. We have a section of our life for work. We have a section of our life for our husband or wife. We have a section of our life for our kids or for sports or for our drinking buddies or golf or whatever it is. We have a section of our life for church, and then we have this section of our life that we have labeled God. And the problem is that God wants to be over all that, not just one of those little sections. For those of you who know me, you know that there are a few verses in the Bible uh, that through the years have just haunted me, and they still just haunt me. Because I just can't quite grasp them. I can't grasp the enormity of them. And the one that haunts me the most is this. It's the one that is the tiniest little phrase in the Bible that is almost nothing more than a parenthetical note. And it simply says, Christ, who is your life? Christ Who is your life? And it haunts me because I really question whether or not that phrase is true about me. Am I really living out that verse? That verse in its context is found in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. And it says, since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul says, 
since you have committed your life to Christ, then you have to rearrange the way that you live. So then, he says, set your hearts on things above. Set your mind on things above. It's what we're getting at when we say we have to turn our lives upside down and think differently. Instead, he says, focus in on the things of God. Now, I can buy into that when I look at that from an eternal perspective at the end of my life kind of perspective. I can buy into that whole thing. But then he goes on and he says, but when you became a Christian, you died. Your life that you once knew is now hidden. And then he goes right into that line and he says, but Christ, who is your life? Now, I don't know about you, but that's a real issue for me. It's hard to deal with that because when you break it down, what Paul is truly saying is that to live as a Christian, Jesus doesn't want to just be your Savior. He wants to be the Lord of your life today. He doesn't want your soul 50 years from now. He wants your heart now. He wants to be in control of every aspect of your life. And I don't know about you, but I have real control issues. I have difficulty giving up control of my life to this God I've never seen. He wants to be Lord over all the sections, all the little compartments of my life. God is not a compartment. He's bigger than our box and he wants to be over it all. That line doesn't say Christ who is part of your life. It doesn't say Christ who is one compartment of your life. And that's what haunts me because it says Christ who is your life. In the message that Jim was just referring to in the video, we, we looked at this idea just a few weeks back about when Jesus comes into our lives He wants access into all the rooms of our life, and he tries to go in the kitchen, and we say, no, 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 I've got some things going on in there, Jesus, that I don't want you to be a part of. Why don't you just go someplace else? And so he tries to go in the bedroom, and we run up, and we throw our arms across the door, and we say, no, 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 there's stuff going on in there, Jesus, that I just don't want you to see. And so he tries to go down in the basement, and you go, you know, there's the same things that I've been trying to throw away for a long time, and I just haven't got around to doing it. In fact, Jesus... Would you mind just kind of waiting out in the hallway? I'll call you when I need you. And so what happens is when you have Jesus waiting in the hallway of your life, he's not really in your life, he's not really out of your life, and so you can't really enjoy anything about your life. You can't enjoy the stuff of your past that you used to enjoy Because Jesus is like hanging out and he knows all that stuff and there's like this guilt that you feel because you know it's the wrong thing to do. And you can't really enjoy the fullness of a life in God can bring because you have Jesus in just a part of your life, but that's it. He's not the whole of your life. And so you remain trapped between two worlds and you can't enjoy either one of them. I did used to, I, I would talk to God or I'd talk to Jesus, I'd pray, and I'd, I'd pray most often in 
times of need, you know, and most of the time I'd end up feeling somewhat guilty about the way I was praying because normally what would happen is I'd find myself praying when I needed help and then I'd realize that the reason I needed help was because I turned away from my teachings. I turned away from from God to begin with. My challenges were being caused by my lack of discipline to my faith. The faith was there, but the discipline was lacking, you know, and, um, you know, so at times I felt like I was, you know, I'd feel guilty that I was almost using my religion as a, as a crutch at times, you know, I'd get myself into trouble and then I'd try to pray my way out of it. Um, but with this, with, with the, with the, with the way that, uh, the, the way the, the realization I had surrounding my drinking, okay, has been the biggest um, moment of clarity I've had since I was a young kid, and it's it's I know that that my faith in God has helped me, okay, in my in this struggle. I know it, and I know that it happened the way that it happened for a reason. We went to a Bears game. My wife. A good friend from out of town who was one of my old running buddies that we used to go out and always have a good time. And we, um, I drank so much the next day I felt like I needed to go to the hospital. And I said to myself, I gotta, I gotta cut this out. And I've said that to myself before and I've cut it out. And two days later, after a hard day at work, I pulled into a parking lot to have a, you know, a vodka tonic on the way home. And I, 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 as I took the drink, I, took a couple sips out of it and I said to myself, Jim, what are you what are you doing? Is this really where we're at? So I went home and I told my wife, you know, I needed to talk to her and I told her that uh, that I had what I had done. I told her I had stopped at the, the bar and I had had a drink and we had just talked about how I was going to stop doing that and I told her I think I need to get some help. I need to put an end to this because it's not it's not um, it's not productive. So for the two or three weeks leading up to that, all of the uh, seasonal beers were out that I liked. You know, I thought I was a connoisseur, you know, so I'm drinking all these different microbrews from all over the region and everything else. And, you know, I, so I had been hitting it kind of hard. And, um, I, and, and what happened, I, 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 found my, I found my sobriety. And two weeks later, I lost my, my brother-in-law to suicide. It tore, this was, I mean, he was, uh, he had issues. Um, he dealt with depression. He dealt with anxiety. He struggled with possibly bipolar issues. And the, but no one was ready for this. So I don't know how you prepare yourself for a moment like that. When something like that hits And when the hard times do hit, who do you want to be in control? Who do you look to? I mean, we all want Jesus in control when things aren't going my way and our back's up against the wall, right? When we're bottomed out and we're broken, there is nothing that we want more than to feel the presence of Jesus when we cry out for his help. The problem is, we have short memories. 
And as soon as we get out of the jam and things start going well again and we get our confidence back and we get our swagger back, we forget. We forget how much we needed Jesus just five minutes ago. We forget the kind of change and peace that Jesus brought to our lives in those tough times. And now that things are back to normal again, we want to take back control again. And we say, thanks, Jesus, but move over now. I'm taking my life back. It's not that we say, I don't believe in you, God, or you're not important to me, God. No, it's just understood. I'll take it from here, God. And all hell breaks loose as we start in with the same old patterns and junk that we have done time and time again. And we're stuck in this cycle, this vicious cycle, where we're in control of our lives, we screw it all up, we bottom out, we ask Jesus for help, we come out of the pit, he helps us out of the pit, we get back on our feet, we take control back over, and we screw it up again. It's a cycle that you see throughout our entire lives. And true, authentic, sustainable change never, ever really occurs. Unfortunately, no matter what our issues are, it usually takes something in our life to blow up. Something that goes awry. Some tragedy. It's not until we are broken and lying on our backs until the light bulb goes on and we say, ah, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. When we become broken and we finally admit that we are ready, that this problem in our life has a chokehold on me, and we finally stop blaming everybody else for our issues and our problems, and we finally become ready where God can come in and clean house, it is only then that we can create the kind of changes in our life that will bring healing that are permanent and sustainable. And so the question remains, are you ready? Do you really need to experience more pain and brokenness in your life before you allow change to happen? When the tough times hit, and they will hit, how will you respond? We got a text that, uh, basically like a suicide text. And we all raced to his house, you know. And on the way there, um, you know, one of the things I was learning in, in my AA meetings was, you know, we kind of, I kind of re, um, get reacquainted with God's will, you know. And, and uh, you know, I was praying on my way there. I was asking God, you know, God, you know, please. I, want, I was about to say, make this not happen or please help this you know and what I ended up saying was please just show me your plan what what do you you know what's going on where where are we at here what's going on and it it was like a moment where I like it was the first real prayer of like in in like a uh, in a in a extremely serious state that I had with 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 God that was 
I wasn't asking him to fix anything. I was asking him to show me how do I help, what do I do, what's going on, did you just take my brother-in-law? Or did my brother-in-law just take himself? You know, where, where are we on this? And I knew, you know, um, I get the chills saying it now, I knew there was a moment, the sky looked funny, I felt something, I knew that when I got there, there was always, it, it was gonna be over, it was gonna be done, and it was time to start repairing. I was right, and for the next, still today, we're repairing. I, this, this happened, and it all happened like this, you know. Got sober, lost, closest person I've ever lost, you know. And then, church, and I'm back. And bringing my wife here has been so helpful, you know. I have a wonderful wife and a awesome son. I've been blessed with both of them, and they're, they're the two biggest blessings in my life. But uh, there was a point, you know, right after this happened, we didn't, I didn't know how to help my wife. I didn't know how to help my father-in-law. I didn't know how to help my brother-in-law's father. I didn't know how to help anybody, but all I did was talk, and I talked with this newfound peace about me, you know, uh, because I let the Lord back into my, into my heart. And um, that's why the first day I was here, I came up to you and I, my story was jumbled, but I wanted, to, I wanted to approach you. I wanted to say something because when I came here, I got exactly what I needed. I got exactly, and I know like we were talking, you were talking last week about wow me, you know, people want to feel something when they come here. But, and, and I think, you know, that, uh, there's more to it than that. You know, you have to, you have to put in the work, you know. Um, but I'll tell you what, f- feeling something when I came here is what brought me back. And in, in that moment, it helped me. You know, God's work, God worked through this church that day. And he's been continuing to work through it for this particular situation in my world, for my wife, for myself. And my son doesn't even know it yet, but it's for him as well. Is our belief in God stronger than our fear of change for our life? So it's clear that Jesus wants to be more than just the Savior of your soul. He wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants to be the King of your heart. He wants to be moved from the passenger seat to the driver's seat. He wants to be moved from being co-pilot to pilot. As Jim describes, he wants to be moved from the hallway of your life and having full access to all the rooms of your life. And that's what Paul's referring to when he says, for when you became a Christian, you died. And now your life is hidden with Christ because beyond just the living process, this new life that we have in Christ, when we become a Christian, there's also this dying process that's pretty gradual. It's not overnight. It's obviously not that we die physically, but there is a battle of two wills that takes place. And in the end, one will live and one will die because there ain't enough room in this old body of ours for the both of them. Somebody's got to go. 
And so our old self has to get dead, buried, and out of the way so that Jesus is able to come in, take control, and to make us into this person, this new life that he created us to become. Now, I don't know about any of you, but there are times when I just can't get out of my own way so that I can change. Just when I think he's dead, the old Darren pops his ugly head up once again, and he just keeps coming back. Just when God is about to do something in me, I screw it up again because I have this issue of giving up control of my life over to Jesus. I'm the one who's saying, move over, Jesus. I'm going to take it back now. And it's back and forth all the time. And I know, in that moment, that Christ is not my life. As I look at the many areas of my life, all these little compartments that I have kept hidden away and kept control of all of throughout my life, I have to say that Christ is not my life yet. But I will tell you this. I'm committed to it. I'm striving for it. Every time I screw it up, I get a little closer to it. But it's a lifelong process where we are giving up another little compartment at a time. Where my life takes on a new identity and there becomes less of me and more of Jesus. And I begin to define who I am, not by my career, not by what I have or what I don't have, but by my relationship with God. Who I am in Jesus. Because God wants that everything that we do be covered in the blanket of his presence. So that once and for all, we can say, Christ, who is my life? That verse has almost become a mantra for me. I find myself just reciting that at times throughout the day. And just to see how it impacts me. And so I'll wake up from time to time in the morning and I'll just whisper those words. Christ, who is my life? I'll be in the middle of some heated negotiation and just to try to get any bit of grounding that I can get in the midst of chaos, I'll just say those words, Christ, who is my life? When I'm home with my family or times even by myself, I'll just whisper those words and believe it or not, it matters. It changes the way that I think. It changes my perspective because more than anything else, I really want that to be true about my life. You want to create permanent and sustainable change in your life? You want to live the life that God created you to live? Then take God out of this box that we've been keeping him in, let him out, give him unlimited access to all of the rooms of our life and start turning over one compartment at a time. 
And the more that we are able to turn over of our lives to Jesus, the closer we get to making it true. The more it frees us up to live passionately and fearlessly and brilliantly. Don't waste another minute of your life chasing the wrong stuff. Because the day will come when all of that stuff that we held on to so tightly that we didn't want to let go of, all of that stuff will one day have no meaning. And when that day comes, it don't matter what happens to me in that moment because on that day, I will hand over my very, very last compartment of my life. And I will take his hand. And on that day, I will finally be able to say, Christ, who is my life. You know, in my toughest moment here, actually weeks before my toughest moment, you know, what I thought was going to be my toughest moment was I got to put this, I got to stop drinking. I got to do this. I got to do this for my family. And my renewed relationship with God helped me, helped me through that. It guided me through that, and it brought me here. And in the meantime, I lost this, I lost this loved one in this tragic scenario, and um, he was there for me. He was there. He drew near, you know, in my, in my toughest moments. My relationship with God now is as strong as, as, strong as it's been. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm back. Um, he's always been there. I'm back. So I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to, I'm ready to get involved. I'm ready. I'm, I'm changing the way that, that I, that I think, the way that I feel. I've got a new, a newfound or a rediscovered calm about me in all my affairs. Um, and I'm not, I'm not turning, I'm not turning away. I'm talking to God. I'm praying on a daily basis. I'm reading the Bible. I feel pretty good. I'm, re- I'm ready to, I don't know what it is. I, I signed up for financial peace, you know. I figured, well, I'll let God into my money. Sure. Get him out of the hallway. Bring him into the, sit him down at the kitchen table when me and my wife are doing one of these, you know. That's a good place for him, you know. From the hallway to the kitchen table, you know. So I'm trying to open other doors, you know, and let him, let him get in all over the place. He's up in my kid's bedroom, you know. So he isn't quite watching the hockey game with me yet, you know, but we're working on it.